You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila-Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon. Now, I can't believe that we're more than halfway done with our journey. Obviously, it takes more than a few weeks to go from woke to anti-racist, but I'm really hoping that the roadmap we've put together and the conversations we've been sharing have been helpful in pointing you towards the path. Now, this episode breaks our usual format because it's not about a level of the journey per se, but it's for good reason. Let me explain. The idea for the anti-racist journey came to me kind of all at once, basically fully formed this past summer. You remember this summer, back when everyone you know was getting woke and almost all the Black people you know were feeling exhausted by all the people getting woke, but not taking any action. Now, I've mentioned that in a former life, I was a marketer. So that's why the journey is arranged as a funnel. It's meant to mimic the marketing conversion funnel of taking consumers from unaware of your product to deciding to become customers. Once I sketched out the funnel in a Facebook post, I started sharing it with people in my life whose opinion I really trusted when it comes to issues of diversity, inclusion, equity, and racial justice. Two such conversations truly ended up significantly impacting the funnel that is now the subject of this podcast. The first such conversation was with a mentor that pushed me to add the allyship level of the journey before anti-racism. Now, we'll unpack that level in another episode, but suffice to say, she was totally right because otherwise the jump from reflection right to anti-racism is probably too big of a leap to make. The second such conversation was with my career coach, who when I shared the journey with her asked a very simple question, what about relationships? People need to be truly in community with the groups that they're aiming to be allies for, right? Absolutely right, indeed. Now, it's kind of ironic that I didn't have this epiphany on my own because the subject of many of my initial writings on race revolved around the importance of interracial friendships where honest conversations about race can take place. For a long time, back when I was naive years old, I really thought that more cross-racial friendships would help us eradicate racism. Now, this was before I fully internalized the reality that there are racist people who actually have Black people in their families. No amount of love or respect for any one specific person of color can on its own make you an anti-racist, because racism has always been able to accommodate exceptions. It often manifests in statements like, well, you're just not like those other Black people, or you know what I mean, I don't even think of you as Black. So yeah, personal relationships alone are not the answer. But that doesn't mean that we can just overlook the importance of relationships and true community in our quest for a more effective and authentic form of allyship and anti-racism. Relationships are a necessary, if not fully sufficient, ingredient to doing the work in the right way. This is because relationships ground you. They can provide critical personal stakes to ensure that you stay motivated and critical perspective to give you needed feedback at moments when you can't possibly know the right thing to do because you're missing the lived experience to know. 
I am really happy that we were able to make space for talking about relationships in this podcast because it's been on my mind for a long time in this season. Every time I go to a 200-person wedding of a white friend and find that my husband and I are the only Black people there, and it wasn't a family-only wedding, or when I see countless Black Lives Matter posts from people on social that I'm fairly certain have no Black friends, or at least none close enough to make it into their Sunday Funday brunch feeds. Remember brunch? Long time ago. When I see that stuff, it just doesn't sit well. I think it's because it always feels off in some critical way. How can you be in favor of Black lives, but live in a diverse city or attend a diverse college and never bother to make any Black friends? Just how does that happen? And it's more than that, really. If I'm honest, and I usually am, I worry that there's an air of paternalism in aiming to be an ally or an advocate for a group that you have no direct ties to. Are we human enough to march for, but not human enough to befriend? How does that work? And if you're a non-Black parent, how far are your well-intentioned chats about race and equality with your kids going to go once they notice that Black people are abstract causes to you and not actual people in your lives? So yeah, this episode is going to get a little uncomfortable because I've had more than a few white friends of mine say that they notice the homogeneity of their circles. Oh my God, they're all white, but they have no idea how to fix it. Not in a way that doesn't make them feel icky. So let's get into it. Since we're talking about such an intimate topic this time, I invited some of my best friends in real life to join me. Not to brag, but my friends are total bosses. Dr. Monica Huerta is an English and American studies professor at Princeton University. Her research and teaching center comparative race and ethnicity approaches to literature and culture as a way of trying to understand how power works. Her first book, Magical Habits, is forthcoming in fall 2021 from Duke University Press, and her second book, The Unintended, Photography, Property, Expression, will follow shortly after that. Also, together with Professor Autumn Womack at Princeton, she founded and now co-directs a new initiative called Organizing Stories toward a scholarly activist praxis. The project seeks to build on a long tradition of joining scholarly work with the intellectual work organizers for social justice do every day. Jess Massa is a storyteller, people leader, and activist. As a director of editorial video and a producer at BuzzFeed, she leads teams that create viral content in areas from personal and cultural identity, food and celebrities, to sustainability and wellness, and everything in between. In her pre-BuzzFeed life, her undergraduate and graduate psychology work focused on the intersection of implicit racial bias, power, and policing. And her 2012 Simon & Schuster book, The Gaggle, dissected modern romance from a sociological lens. And since this is a podcast and you can't see them, I'll share that Monica is a Mexican-American woman and Jess is a white woman of Italian heritage. While they've both done work relevant to the topics of race, inclusion, and equity, I mostly invited them because they, like me, have diverse circles of friends of all races and backgrounds, regardless of where they found themselves living. Translation, I'm not their only Black friend. feels really good to say that. (laughs) It pains me to share how many friends I have, for which that statement would not be true. Mon and Jess, welcome. Thank you so much for coming to join me today. Thank you for having us. This is really exciting. And I will try not to giggle my way through this because we're going to talk about very serious and important topics. But usually when we're on Zoom, 
we're just hanging out as friends. So excited to like delve into this and bring some of our off camera, off audio conversations, hopefully to some other people who maybe will find it helpful. Totally. I just waved at the camera. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for waving at our podcast friends. I think they feel it. I don't know if anyone saw me raising the roof during Monica's bio, but I'm very excited about this. I did. There was applause. So, So this is what it's usually like. So I'm so excited to have you both here. And I kind of just want to get right to it. Now, when I say that the journey towards true allyship towards Black people and towards an anti-racist state has to include actual relationships with Black people, what does that statement mean to you? Why are relationships important to doing the work? Monica, do you want to start? Sure. I feel like one of the things that I think about a lot is in my work and also just like as a person is the meeting ground between something like politics and relationships. So like, how is it that people live out the things that they think about the world that we should live in? And so I feel like for me, how it is that I'm drawn to people. So what kinds of relationships I want to be having are the people who understand that meeting ground, like the people who think about what kind of world they want to be living in, the people who think about the things that are wrong with the world that we're living in and the ways that they can interject in their various spheres of life to making it a little bit closer to the world that we might want to live in. And what that's meant, I think, is that I have relationships with people who are variously oriented, right? Because of their biography, because of where they come from, because of their cultural background. So I feel like for me, coming into friendships and coming into relationships with people who are Black people has been less about a kind of aiming at that and more about being curious about the ways that people live out the things that they think about the world, right? So that's why I say the meeting ground between politics and how people orient themselves in their own life, because those are the things that I've always been interested in. So they're the people that I've always been drawn to are the people who are interested in that. Yeah, totally. Jess? Yeah, I I love what you said, Mon, because I think it's maybe even important to mention up front that having a diverse friend group is not a philanthropy project or something that should be done for the best of the world. It's also just more fun and more engaging and the conversations are better and the learnings are more interesting and like just people who are engaging with the world in a different way than you are. Even not for the good of the world, just for you. I choose my friends because I'm obsessed with them and because I have the best and most interesting time with them and not because they're a checkbox on the anti-racist checklist. So it was just really interesting to hear you say that, Mon, because I hadn't thought of it in that way. But I think that's a great question, Kamala. And honestly, I have really complicated feelings about this because from the perspective of a white woman, I think it's really important to note that, well, we'll just say having Black friends is an important part of doing the work, but it is not the work. And I think that that's something that gets lost a lot. I think we see that a lot with the, but I have a Black friend response. Therefore, I can't be racist. Therefore, I'm doing the work I must be because this Black person has agreed to hang out with me. So I must be on the good side of this. I think that's important to note because also if you're seeing having Black friends as doing the work, then you are putting the onus on your Black friends to be the work. And that is not a friendship. And that is not actually going to be the foundation to a friendship because who wants to hang out with you if mostly it feels like they're providing you insight and learnings and are a soundboard for you on your anti-racist journey. So I think that's why how does having friendships with Black people intersect with doing the work? Like 
a byproduct of those friendships is you will get better at doing the work. But I just think as white people, we need to immediately cut off this idea that it's like, okay, I will read all the books, check. I will post the right things on social media. I will make four black friends and I will like keep going down the list. And so given that, I do totally agree though, that it's an integral part of doing the work. And I think that there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One of your earlier podcasts, I believe it was one of the ones about sympathy. One of your guests was saying that as a black woman, she still found herself distancing her experience from George Floyd in a variety of ways. And that the thing that really struck her was when she found out that he would have turned, I believe it was 47, if he was still alive and she was 47. And that was the thing that hit her in some way that created another commonality between herself and George Floyd that made her emotionally even more invested in what was happening. And I think that I wish this weren't true. I wish we could all live in some kind of neutral humanity where we just cared about ethics and what was right and the arc of the moral universe. But I think the reality is that when there's hard work to be done, like there is an anti-racism part of the motivation is if it's actually personal to you. And so you can read every book you want or listen to every podcast and think you know how you want to engage in this fight. But the reality is when it's your friends and loved ones who you're in a car with them and a cop drives by and you're living that experience and seeing that, or you are having them tell you they're afraid to go for a run on a business trip because they don't know that neighborhood and aren't sure if it's safe, or they're at work and they're being tone police or they're being passed up for promotions they deserve because of culture fit. It's so much more of a natural jump to then be totally incensed and frustrated and driven to fix things and change things. And again, I I really wish that actually weren't the case. I wish it was just that it was the right thing to do. But by actually having people in your life who are affected by these issues of racism and just caring about them and loving them, it is often that extra motivation that you might need as a white person to get in the fight, to live in the discomfort, to make other people uncomfortable because these are the people that you love and you feel pushed to change things on their behalf. So I think that's part of why with my psychology background, I'm interested in why would people go out of their way to work on something that it seems like doesn't directly affect them. And I think a huge part of that is just actually having your community and your network be full of people who you truly deeply love and who are personally affected by everything that's going on. And that will be the thing that gets you out of bed, ready to take on the fight every day. Yeah, I love what you both said. I think the piece around having diverse friends, or in this particular case, like having Black friends is not the work in and of itself. But having no Black friends, I think, is a different type of not doing the work. I think it's important to hold the idea in your head that it is integral, but not sufficient. It is not the work in and of itself. But if that sphere of your life doesn't exist at all, there's probably something else that needs to be unpacked. Because to Monica's point, I think most people make friends that align with things that are truly important to them and people that they feel like they can mirror some part of their values onto or see some of their values in. If this is a deeply held value of yours, that should naturally lead you without having any sort of a black radar on at different workplaces, but it should naturally create an interest that you have in sort of knowing more about different people that are different from you. 
So Monica, as I was preparing for this episode, I thought about some of the conversations that you and I have had this summer around, let's call it the emerging interest that white friends who never cared to talk about race before seem to sprout overnight in the face of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. Now, I know that you, for one, were more than a bit frustrated and kind of wary of it all. And you shared a really personal note about your feelings on it to some of your own friends in your circle. Can you share a bit about what aspects of this mass awareness and fervor around racial injustice just made you a little uncomfortable and how that showed up even in your own relationships? Sure, sure. So, I mean, one of the things is something that you already mentioned in the intro, that there was a way this summer that people took something like protests against police violence or heightened awareness of abolitionist movements against mass incarceration or the join between those things and environmental racism or the pandemic and its ramifications across racial lines and took that opportunity and that heightened political awareness across social cultural lines to be an opportunity for them to like feel cool because they were also doing it at a very surface level without thinking about why they never cared about that before, (laughs) why that wasn't something that they were curious about in the past. And in my circles, in our circles, the ones that overlap and the ones that don't, one thing that I, I just felt really called to think about is how much something like the broader structures of white supremacy had really mapped onto some of the intimacies that I was inside of. And I spent a, a good part of the second half of this year thinking about that and thinking about what it would take for me to be in relation with people who I love, right? I love, they've been integral to me, to my trajectory since my entire adulthood, who have been there for me through all the things. And also that there were, that there are some silences, right? That I felt like I had to maintain in order for the relation to be, right? And that's that's about my own sense of evolving politics. That's about my own reading and work that I've done as a scholar and as a person in the world and as a person in relations and as a person who seeks to evolve as a matter of course, not as a matter of accident. And that became an evolving set of conversations in some of my friendships where I felt like that was really part of the structure of them in a way that was really sad, right? Because those are relations that I care about. And also for myself to feel aligned and honest and like I could show up sincerely and wholeheartedly in the rest of my circles and in the relations where those silences didn't have to be the case. It felt important to me to at least speak about and try to mend where things could be mended and alter where things could be altered at the interpersonal level by way of saying, things that are difficult to say, right? So like, how is it that you have gone to the actual best colleges and universities in the world and you weren't curious about the world in this way? How is it that you are so ambitious and so successful? Everything, when you decide to do something, you know everything about it within two weeks. You have action plans and lists and you network and you go to events and you do everything, right? Like our friends are type A folks. You do everything. And this is a part of the world that you weren't moved to think about. And it's not a part of the world, right? It's the structuring reality of the 21st century. 
is the history of race and power and capitalism. Those are structuring realities. It's not accident. That's not like a side issue, right? And that just really, in the heightened moment of this year, as an aftermath of a lot of years of feeling distances grow for various reasons, it wasn't something that felt like I could just be like, oh, okay, that's annoying, right? <laughs> that you like are posting some things on social media and that's like kind of booty. <laughs> it felt like something I had to think about out loud with those relationships and decide, you know, make decisions with those relations about whether or not the relations could feel good to me to be in anymore. It's really important for me to be in honest relation with everybody in my life. And so for me also, in relation to them, it felt important to not feel like there were things I couldn't talk about, which I think was something that a lot of people in the current political climate have had a hard time knowing how to manage, right? Just how to be honest with family members who are racist or family members who got like sucked into the weird kinds of weird and animated cultures of conservatism and neo-fascism that have grown up in the last 10 years. And then suddenly find that like your ex or your brother or your whoever or your uncle is like inside of it and really, really believe in some things, right, that are banana cakes, but they feel very logical to themselves. In that way, that's why I wrote about it, right, in that LARB piece, because I didn't feel like that was something that only I was dealing with, but that it was something that a lot of people were dealing with because the colorful neo-fascisms that have become popularized in the last 10 to 15 years are popularized, right? So it means that somebody you know, or somebody in your family or somebody's family who you're close to is inside of that belief system and that orientation towards not only something like other people and Black people specifically, but also history and truth and America <laughs> and the reality. There's so much I think that's worth double clicking on because I think that you're right. Most people have someone in their close proximate circle that they feel uncomfortable talking about the events of this like spring and summer with and that they actively avoid. At my last job, I started doing some discussion circles on race just as everybody was processing it. And that's just something that I feel comfortable doing in very diverse circles, just bringing people into a conversation about it. And one of the first questions that I would pose to people is, who are the people that you're talking about the events of this summer with? And they would write down who those people are. And then who are the people that you have not brought it up with at all? Because you already know. The problem with knowing that answer and maintaining that silence is that it is a way of sort of yourself not fully divesting from those structures because you're not willing to call it out. And when we talk about, which we'll talk about in a later episode, allyship, for me, allyship without sacrifice is very empty. But I think people don't always know, well, what do I have to give up? You're saying that I can't have the job I want or live in the neighborhood that I want. And it's like, I don't know, maybe I don't know your specific circumstances, but it might be comfort that you have in certain relationships because you don't bring certain things up. Maybe that's what you have to sacrifice. And the next day, some of those people might be better friends than they were yesterday. And the next day, some of those people might not be friends anymore. But calling me out of the blue to say, hey, Kamala, how's it going? I feel really bad is not helpful to me in the way that going at it with uncle or aunt so-and-so who you already know feel a certain way. I'd much rather you call me and tell me how difficult that conversation was, because then you're really putting something on the line 
in the service of. And I think that I also love that you said that part of it was just trying to be authentic in all of your relationships. And I would say to the people who are listening to this and they're like, yeah, I have a couple of Black friends. My question would be, would you be comfortable bringing me or whoever your other Black friends are around the rest of your circle and having this conversation? Because if you wouldn't, then there is an inconsistency there. And then if there's just a total absence of friendships with Black people in your life, then you never have to have that internal conversation about whether or not you would be comfortable saying all the things that you're saying to me to all of the other white people in your life or your entire Thanksgiving dinner party or whatever that case may be. I just love that you connected those two thoughts. And a while ago, I read white fragility. And one of the parts that stuck in my head was something that she said about how the persistent whiteness of certain spaces, whether it's schools, neighborhoods, clubs, friend circles, really in some ways do reflect the hold that white supremacy has on our society, even when the white people living within those spaces themselves feel very liberal, very progressive, would never consciously say that they subscribe to white supremacy. So my takeaway was that telling your kids that people of all races are equal while only having white friends is akin to a hypocrisy that they're going to figure out because the message that you're sending them through your actions is coming through much louder than whatever it is that you're saying. So one thing that I've started just telling white friends of mine who have asked, you know, how can I show up in a better way? is that I want people to become more inherently skeptical and suspicious, if you will, of any and all all white spaces that they find themselves in and start to ask, well, why is it this way? Because in most cases, it is almost certainly not a coincidence or an accident that whatever room that you're sitting in, whatever neighborhood that is, whatever team that is at work, it's not an accident that there are no Black people there, for instance. And starting to ask yourself why that is can be, I think, a really important first step. So Jess, I'm wondering if you can talk about the role that you feel like your parents or your neighborhood or your schools had in shaping what kind of friend circles you now have as an adult and what impact, if any, did that have on how you thought about building relationships in general? Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, Kamala and Mon, you both know my parents really well. They are wonderful, magical, loving humans who will definitely be listening to this because they're very obsessed with both of you. So hi, mom and dad, love you guys. But you know, I'd say that I think there's some really key and important ways that they modeled friendship to me that have had a huge impact on how I've chosen my friends and engaged in those friendships. But I also think that still there are generational differences that have meant that there's still a lot that I've had to learn and have ups and downs with and make big mistakes with on my own. So it's also never going to be perfect. Parents shouldn't put the expectation on themselves to somehow model it perfectly because the world will keep changing. I think with my parents, I'd say the first thing that they did is that they put me and themselves in uh, especially diverse situations. So when they chose when I was a baby to move out of Brooklyn and into New Rochelle, which is the city where I grew up, Part of their reason for choosing New Rochelle was at the time, it was one of the top 10 most diverse cities in America. And that was incredibly appealing to them. So they knew we were going to live there, that we were going to live in a diverse neighborhood, that I'd be going to public schools that were very diverse. That really, really mattered to them. So to your point, Kamala, even looking around your space and being like, are there even Black people or just people of color here? That is a really key thing. Like You have to make life choices that are going to put you in contact with people 
who are not like you if you are white. And they do that in a lot of ways. I mean, we moved to New Rochelle, but also my dad spent 20 years working in sanitation in the South Bronx. My mom spent most of her career working at a nursing home in the Bronx as well, that the patient population was heavily Black and Latinx. My dad coached Little League in our, again, very diverse city. My mom was a Girl Scout leader for a diverse group of Girl Scouts. And so there was that thing of just them putting themselves and then by proxy me into spaces where we were going to be interacting with people who were not white. And I was going to have non-white teachers and non-white principals and non-white friends and their parents. And so I do think that their modeling of that was really key. But still, how you engage in those friendships is just as important. And I think even in my city, so if you look at like pictures of me with my friends in first grade, it's like an adorable, what they always like a little Benetton ad of like diverse kids running around. And then if you start looking through high school, all of a sudden, it's just a bunch of gleaming white faces into the camera, because all of the systemic reasons that even very diverse communities end up splitting apart were also true in New Rochelle. And so it's not a given that just by putting yourself into a space, that's what your circle is going to end up looking like. And I think the other thing then that they really modeled for me was it wasn't just like, okay, we're going to have 10 couples over for dinner. One couple is going to happen to be black. Therefore, yay, we have black friends. My parents really, they did not have race blind friendships. So they really partnered with their friends in doing work and engaging in issues and communities that also matter to their friends. So my mom didn't just have black friends or work with black people in her nursing homes, but she went every year with her best friend who was Nigerian to Nigeria with a mostly black group of medical professionals to treat people, but also begin building medical systems in Nigeria that were self-sustaining that could bring more advanced work to some of those communities than they would have had if this group hadn't come. So that's not my mom saying, by the way, my best friend is black. It's like you are going with her to Nigeria to use your expertise to improve the situation in some of these communities. My dad, again, whether it was coaching Little League or having then a whole second career where he was working in schools with children who had really struggled in more traditional academic settings, and a lot of those students were black and Latinx. He's doing work in those communities and with those teachers, with those social workers, with those psychologists to try to help these kids have better outcomes than they might have had otherwise. And so I think it wasn't that like I have black friends and no way changes the way I engage in these friendships. I think those friends were able to look at them and say, whatever privilege or expertise or money or experience you have, you're also interested in bringing to the communities that I'm invested in. And that just deepens the friendship. And then it's like a real core thing. But I will say that what they didn't really model for me, and I think this was just a generational thing, was the need in those friendships to still be having difficult, awkward conversations about race the way that the three of us do all the time. Not to take the onus off of them, but I just think it didn't happen at that time and the expectations weren't that you should be having those conversations. So my dad could have spent his whole life around people of color and especially around Black people. But still this summer, he was so upset about Ahmaud Arbery. Like I remember him calling me, I was like on my roof trying to eat lunch and he was calling me, he'd seen some news special about it. And he was so angry that this could happen. And he was just running and like, but how could that be? And I remember him having a similar reaction when he saw the HBO Sandra Bland documentary. And he just was like, this can't be, this doesn't make sense. I'm so upset. And for him to be having some of these epiphanies in 2020, 
versus an earlier in his life, which I'm also really grateful that he's having it and that he also seeks out that content and that media. And that's part of why I work in media is because I believe in the power of these stories and making sure they're told in a way that opens people's eyes. But if he had been having more transparent conversations with his Black friends over the years, it wouldn't have been as shocking to hear these stories. And I think the same is also true of my mom and some of the issues in healthcare, issues in education, or issues around language and what words you can and can't say in those things. I didn't necessarily watch them having those conversations. And so I think I still needed to learn that these topics needed to be talked about and they were going to be uncomfortable and that I could also do all the work in my own time in different communities that was meaningful, but it didn't mean that I still wasn't going to have massive blind spots that I was going to be called out for and need to work on and need to dissect. And again, I don't blame them for that. But I think that parents of our generation, my friends who have young kids, have an opportunity to make it this three-part thing where they're like, okay, we have friends of color. We have put ourselves in situations where we are going to interact with people who are not white. Secondly, we're going to have actual friendships with those people where we partner with them on issues they can use our privilege and expertise to be giving back to communities that they care about. But then three, we're also going to engage in these sometimes very challenging conversations that are going to make them realize that no matter how much work they're doing or how many friends they have, they are still white and they're still carrying that with them every day and they can still take these issues off of them when they're tired of them. And that is not the experience of their friends. So I think if there's that kind of modeling going on, you know, we can raise like a really different generation of people. And that's what I would really love. But I would say that I don't know that I knew any of that was going on with my parents when I was growing up. I certainly wasn't aware of it. But now looking at my life as a 37 year old and their lives, and I'm like, oh, I guess that actually did sort of give me some tools and some aspirations of what I wanted my life and my friendships to look like that I guess a lot of white people maybe weren't privy to growing up. Absolutely. I mean, I love that you talked about the role of media because as I was listening to both of your answers to the last questions, we haven't seen any examples. Like if you think about all the things that we've seen on television when it comes to how people of different races interact, we've seen some romantic relationships. That's probably what we've seen the most of. I would say we've seen maybe a few friendships, but what we rarely have seen is like an in-depth scene of a white person talking to a black person about their experience of racism or a white person talking to a black person when the black person's telling them something that you did actually really didn't sit well with me. We've never seen that. And so people have no tools or understanding that to your point that it's not just about finding a black person that you can add to your brunch photo. It's about actually having deep friendships with people. And a part of deep friendship is talking about things that bother you, is confronting your friend with things that they do that inadvertently, like, you know, hurt your feelings or or disturb you or frustrate you or confuse you or all of the things that you would normally talk about. And one thing that I do think is typical is that when you have those friend groups where there is the one Black friend, most of the people in that circle probably would have to admit that they haven't had a conversation about race with that Black friend. They just have one. And so one of the reasons why I'm so adamant that this needs to be a part of your mindset when you're approaching this work is that there is a lived understanding of racism that Black people in this country have, that people of color in this country have, and a way that we understand how America operates that 
you just won't ever be able to access unless you're really in relationship with people because it's probably not going to be shared with you otherwise. I think one exception to the media point that you and I have talked about, not on a podcast, I just want to always shout out, is This Is Us. I was thinking about it, yeah. Yes, the scene where, sorry, spoiler, but where Randall is talking to his sister who he still loves. Like, I think that's what's important. Like, you know, you're being called in instead of called out. He's not going to stop loving his sister. But her reaction to the events of this summer and going from never talking about race to sending him pictures from protests and asking him how he's doing every day. The discomfort of that scene and watching her realize she's failed him, but also she tried to do what she thought was the right thing and watching him have to tell someone he loves that he hasn't felt supported by her. I mean, that show in general, but that scene was like, I thought the first time I've ever seen in media what it looks like to be calling in someone who you love, but also has not been addressing these correctly. And as a white person who has been in those conversations, we talk about representation in media. I was like, I've never felt those moments represented on my end of like what it looks like for a white person who is genuinely, truly close to people of color to still be confronted when they have not handled something correctly. And I was so grateful for that scene to exist and for people to watch that and also realize Randall's not saying, I never want to talk to you again, Beth, I don't love you anymore. This is a journey and I'm redirecting you on this journey because I love you so much that to mom's point, I want to be authentic in this relationship. And if I don't say this, if I don't call this out to you, we can't move forward with the closeness that we both want. And so I just, this is us. Thank you for always being the exception. (laughs) It's funny. I was thinking about that because that scene stood out for all of those reasons. And I think the thing that really stuck with me about it is that that level of discomfort that Randall has when he's talking to his sister, Kate, is something that Black people live with so deeply all the time in their experiences and their interactions and their deep relationships with white people. Because you are annoyed but you still find yourself holding the bag of, I don't want to say it in a way that upsets them and makes them like not my friend anymore. But I'm feeling this way. And so if I don't say it, what maybe happens instead is that you start to subconsciously create distance in that relationship because you realize you can't bring your full self to that conversation. And you're just waiting and waiting. And and sometimes you're like seething. And I think the fact that he was able to say that is partly because, yes, you know, the writers want to put that out in the universe that like, this should be a part of the journey. If you think you're on some sort of a journey this summer, and you've not been confronted with your own complicity and white privilege, then do this summer again. Because there's somebody in your life that's trying to not have this conversation with you, probably. But I think also it's just the safety of the familial relationship, I think helps it because generally people are not going to discard their siblings. So you sort of are like, no matter what terrible things we say, we'll get back to a good place after. And bringing that level of bravery to your close friendships, I think is really important on both sides to know that this is not something that means that I never want to see you again. Being called out for doing something racist doesn't mean that now I've I've put you in the category in my head of terrible person I don't want to interact with. Those people, I just don't bother calling it out, actually. And I just create the distance appropriately. But if there is a Black person in your life who is brave enough to say, hey, something that you did was not okay, take it as such a strong signal of their belief in you that you're actually going to be able to do better if they bring you this feedback. Monica? So for me, it's been really important 
in those interpersonal relationships and also in instances when there's not a meeting ground, you know, in terms of knowledge between one person and another about all of these things is to think about what kinds of structures have produced both sets of understandings. So like when Jess was talking about her parents and their orientations towards priorities in living in a diverse place, having a diverse set of friends, even for them, right? There were certain structures that were conditions of possibility towards different ways of being. And there were conditions of possibility that structured them such that Fred, Fred is just that, such that Fred had a moment this summer, right? Of shock and outrage that is obviously absolutely correct and also structured by the conditions of possibility of his life. And so I think that is for me in general and specifically in terms of how relations form in the context of the history of race and power, thinking about what structures create, you were saying earlier, Kamala, right? Like create the possibilities for certain friendships in certain places, for spaces that are all white and people don't realize it, for neighborhoods, train routes, highways, dental care, etc. I think that is an underappreciated way of thinking about the relationships that you have, that actually there are also structures that you have been inside of, interacted with institutions, schools, community centers, what have you, that are part of why you have certain people in your life and you don't have other people in your life. And we're not really good at talking about ourselves, our biographies, as though they are also embedded in structures. And we're not good at talking about the intimacies that pass through people and the opportunities for intimacies to pass through people as also being structured by something like institutions, something like social structures, something like structures of the ways of the habits that people have of feeling, right? So like a habit of feeling, for example, in the public sphere, awkward about talking about loving Black people, right? There's we like don't have a habit for talking about or a discourse outside of Black communities and Black Twitter about loving Black people as though, of course you would. <laughs> like, of course, that's a thing that you would do. Why is that a thing you would not do, right? We just don't have, and that, like, we can think about something like a discourse as also something like a structure. So I think it's not a way that people think about their relationships as embedded in structures as and so embedded in histories, right? So it's really hard for people to come to these moments of what feel, I think in the lived experience of it, right? It's about like awkwardness or discomfort. I'm going to make someone mad or make someone uncomfortable or they're not going to be my friend, right? There's a very myopic understanding of what relationship is because there's also a myopic understanding of what a person is and what their life is. So these conversations, yeah, that are about prioritizing relationships are also, I think, necessarily about understanding yourself as embedded and responsible for the relations that you choose to make and don't choose to make and being responsible for understanding why you have been in situations where some relations have been possible and where some relations have not been possible. And it's not about feeling bad or feeling upset at yourself for like having a certain kind of life, but it is about deciding to be responsible for the kind of life that you've had and deciding that actually, if I'm going to be a part of a positive shift that is more than just about how I feel about myself, then that means questioning some of the assumptions through which I've come to based on the structures that have structured my life and being okay with the fact that it's not just you and your family who matter. You and your family didn't design America. You actually are in a society with like a shit ton of other people and like hundreds of years of history. So maybe you could think about that. 
So good. It's so important. I love that Mon is talking about like the entire history of civilization. And I'm like, has anybody seen this? Is absolutely good. <laughs> this podcast has reach. So I think we're going to reach everybody with one of these examples. I love that you mentioned just being thoughtful about why it is that your life looks the way that it looks. Because I think that, and this is exactly where I was going to go next, because I think that there's a lot of people, there are probably a lot of people listening right now who are really squirming in their seats and feeling very uncomfortable. Some are probably even feeling unfairly called out. They're like, what do you want me to do? I grew up in X, Y, and Z place and there are just no people and like blah, blah, blah. And so like, what should I do? And I think that it's not about feeling bad, but it is about saying, why does my circle look like this? Because as a Black person who's been the new kid on the block at many different jobs at different points in life, and everybody has been, right? You join a new place and you don't know anyone. I have routinely seen instances where I'll join a team and almost always be the only Black person on whatever that immediate team is, if it's a team of five or 10 or whatever it is. And unless it's a team of 50, maybe there'll be like another Black person, right? You know, the small, closer-knit teams of 20 or less, I'll join. And I'm like, okay, I'm one of the few Black people here. I'll have whatever experience I'm having. People will be nice. People will be cordial. Some might reach out, but mostly it's just sort of like colleagues. And then I'll notice when a white person will join after me. And then within like a month, I hear that such and such went to lunch together, or they hung out this weekend, or they did all of these other things. As a Black person, you see that and you feel that and you notice it every time because it's not just accidental that you just happen to invest in every white person that you meet and every black person seems like a really cool person that I'm impressed with, but that's it. There's something going on there. In the intro, I mentioned that I have had a few white friends tell me that they realize that I am their only black friend and they don't know what to do about it. So Jess, I kind of want to go to you because I can really count on one hand the number of white friends that I have who have had Black friends through every phase of their lives and for whom I can say I know I'm not their only Black friend who really do cultivate a truly diverse set of friends. And so I think what all the white people listening are wondering right now is, how do you do it? And more seriously, any thoughts on why this seems to be so unique amongst people? Yeah, I never thought I'd be on a podcast being like, how do you have Black friends? <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> have you ever I want to sort of double down on an earlier point just to always be hitting this home, which is just a reminder of like, these are friendships. And so at the very, very core, the most important thing is being a good friend to people. Like if you just take race and experience and background for a second out of it, we talk about these things all the time. The fact that you, Kamala, are Black and I am white, that is a massive part of how our friendship functions. But we would not be friends if I didn't try to be an incredible friend to you and you weren't an incredible friend to me. So we spend most of our time watching horror movies and sharing music. Talking about this is us. Talking about this is us, like boy struggles, job struggles, parent struggles, going on vacations, going off-roading in Jeeps. I just want to like continue to make it very clear that the foundations of friendship that I do think most people know, including most white people, they have to apply to these friendships as well. Like that has to be the core that you're a really great friend. And then I think the question is kind of then why do white people often disqualify themselves from having friendships with more diverse friends. If they can be great friends to other people and to other white people, then why is it that you might be their only Black friend, Kamala? 
that to me is what's interesting. If there's an assumption that they know how to be a really awesome friend to somebody, which should be the core of everything. It's just a very like human skill set to have. But I think there is a couple things that I've learned over the years that I also think then get into like why to your question it it's sort of unique that white people find themselves with a very diverse group of friends. I think one is that I've had to get comfortable and I would advise anyone who's interested in having a more diverse friend group and getting comfortable in being uncomfortable and in being the minority. It's something that your friends of color will have experienced all the time. So like you said, you're constantly in rooms where you're the only black person. I think a lot of white people are not used to that, are not used to what it feels like to be in the minority. And that is uncomfortable. It's weird. It makes you very aware of your whiteness immediately. It makes you question how am I supposed to be in this space? What's the proper way? Is everybody thinking about the fact that I'm the white person here? And a lot of white people, because they're not used to that, get tempted to opt out. They're just like, this is uncomfortable. I'd rather be in a place where I don't have to think about this. And I'd say to white people, and I've said to myself, that if you think you're friends with somebody, let's say you think you're friends with a black person, and you've only really interacted with them in mostly white spaces or kind of on your, quote, turf, then you're not actually as close as you think that you are. Because what really brings your friendship to the next level is to be invited into your friend's world. So for me, a huge learning curve for me was going to the cookouts in your backyard with your friends and family, where there are very few white people, or being in the music league that we're all in now, which is primarily non-white, and being the only white person on those Zooms. Like I now am very used to the experience of being one of the only white people in a space. And it is still, for a moment, jarring to me, a little bit uncomfortable. And I have to think, what is the proper way for me to be in this group and make sure that I'm allowing it to be an unapologetically non-white space and not sort of asserting some sort of white dominance over it. And again, there is discomfort in that initially. And so I think that's one thing that a lot of white people, when they find themselves in a space where they're a minority... They're surprised by the discomfort in that, that they're not seeking out those experiences or sort of working through that to get to the other side where actually you are accepted into a group. You are able to be there and be your full, authentic white self. Nobody is asking you to be black or anything else. Like, please don't try to be like, be your white self. Like, I'm constantly like, hello, I'm white. Hello, I'm Italian. I'm not going to pretend I had a childhood I didn't or pretend that I understand cultural references that I did not grow up with. There should be no performing in it. But the fact that there are those differences is going to be uncomfortable at times. And just sitting in that and being comfortable with that, I think is a huge part of it. And then I think something else I've noticed a lot is, and again, have made this mistake in the past too, is a tendency of some white people to invalidate the experiences that their friends of color are trying to explain to them just because they haven't lived them. So this is where I say like white people can often disqualify themselves from deeper levels of friendship because at some point that friend is feeling open enough to tell you about discrimination they're facing or bias they're facing or this experience they're having at work that they really feel is based in race or in dating or in walking down the street or how they're interacting with cops and people in different neighborhoods. And if you haven't experienced that, which a lot of us white people have not, it's really tempting to either one, want to give other reasons for why that thing might be happening. You're, you're like, you think you're trying to help your friend because you're like, no, 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 maybe you just haven't thought of it this way. Or to give advice about how to navigate those situations without realizing that the way you might navigate it as a white person is fundamentally already different than how your friend is probably able 
the way they can speak to their boss, the way they can push back on that cop, et cetera, et cetera. Your advice is not super relevant to their options in any situation. And so I think another part of it is just listening to your friends and believing their experiences of the world and validating them and supporting them through it without trying to convince them that that's not actually happening. I see that conversation happening a lot in interracial friendships. So that occurs to me. And then I think that the last thing that comes to mind and that I've thought about a lot over the years is the idea of discomfort. Like I mentioned, when you're in the minority, when you're very aware of your whiteness, that goes away once you are close friends with people. But then I think every time you enter into a new group and a new space, it comes back again. And I think a lot of white people tap out when they realize that you don't get a black adjacent card, for example, just because one group of people has accepted you into the group. You're like, I'm pre-vetted. You're like, oh my, can somebody call Kamala? And Kamala can tell you that I get to be here. I'm pre-qualified for a black friendship. (laughs) That doesn't exist. And so, and I've like seen some really great comedy sketches about this, by the way. I think like Neil Brennan, who's a white comic who co-created The Chappelle Show with Dave Chappelle and has a lot of black friends has, in a way that I would not express, but he has like touched on this too. The idea that every time you're, entering into a new space, you have to start from the beginning and building that trust. Like you are carrying the weight as you should be. I'll say for me, of all the other white women who make it hard to be friends with white women, that is real. And there's, I understand why I might enter a space and it might be like, why would I let this person be a really close member of my life? And you don't get to say, oh, because I have like eight other black friends. or Oh, because I like studied this in college or, oh, because I do work in policing. Like You can't do that. You just start from the beginning and you build that friendship up from the beginning and you build that trust and you have those conversations and you show through action that you care about these issues and that you believe the experiences that you're being told. And so I think that's something that I've done over time. And I think that I've seen a lot of other white people tap out when they sort of do get a touch of acceptance into a diverse community, but then it doesn't translate to a whole other diverse community. And they're like, well, that looks really hard to have to prove myself as a white person and a white ally again, I'm just going to hang with my one group who knows that I'm cool and okay to be here. Those are sort of my tips is like, believe your friends, validate their experiences, even if they're not yours, be comfortable being in the minority and know that there's going to be discomfort and just work through it. And then every time be willing to start from the ground up in terms of building trust and rapport with people who understandably, rightfully are skeptical of whether they really want to invest a lot of time and energy into you. And then just do that over and over and over. And then you're going to end up with the best group of friends that any human could possibly have. But there's going to be discomfort in that. And you have to be willing to sit in that. And I don't think white people are always psyched about sitting in discomfort. Totally. I mean, there is a craving that many people have for ease. And I think if ease is what you're looking for, this is definitely going to be the harder path, Monica. Just to return to my earlier point that like, that is because of white supremacy, right? Like that's because the world was built to make white people ease possible and to make white people ease a value. That's a value in our society, right? And society has been literally constructed from suburbs on out to make white people feel easeful and comfortable. So again... For me, like why history matters to me and why thinking about history matters to me in the long stretch and the short stretch of time is because it takes not the pressure off, but it takes the onus off of the personal or the intimate to have to answer for 
what is a much longer, much more complicated story about how we get to a place where folks don't like being uncomfortable. Like that's not about Susie Q and Paul G having like a hard time with discomfort. That's about the entire structure of America that has helped them to feel like they should always be comfortable. Because by the way, people of color don't feel comfortable as a matter of course, America, (laughs) that's not a thing. (laughs) And that they are correct in their assumption that their comfort is the most important value in any given case, and that something morally wrong is taking place if they're uncomfortable. So again, just to like encourage folks to think historically about how it is that even their personal feelings are shaped and come to be because I think it really matters to not get stuck in any of these cul-de-sacs of emotion. And if I could just say something directly to white people from my experience, that comfort should be so low down on your priority list of things to experience and feel. Like it's not as meaningful and as wonderful as all the better things that you will get to experience from having a more diverse friend group. Like comfort is not that awesome compared to the other things that could come into your life by pushing yourself in some of these areas and questioning yourself and improving in the way that you're able to relate to people who've had a different experience than you. So like comfort, we were built for that. White supremacy built us a comfortable world. And also like comfort is so boring. Like who cares about comfort? There's so many better things for a white person to push themselves to feel that I think that like anyone listening to this who then made a journey on this would be grateful at the end that they didn't prioritize their own comfort over a lot of other things. That's so good. I mean, because to your point, Monica, I do think that as a person of color and as a Black person and as a Black woman specifically, I am very aware that most spaces are not meant to be comfortable for me. In fact, much of my upbringing has been about my parents trying to help to prepare me for what to do when faced with the discomfort that everybody knows is coming. And it is on me to figure out how to be resilient and adaptive and flexible because I can't opt out. I need to engage. And I think that as humans, yes, I think we all prefer comfort. It feels good. But I think some people know that comfort is actually not an option for them and that they will need to optimize for something else. And some people feel like comfort isn't very much an option for me because it has been. And so what we're talking about, which is please intentionally try to insert yourself into a friendship where that friend may call you out, hard pass. But I'm like, this is why I have my side eye face on when you're like, I'm deeply committed to Black Lives Mattering. Are you? Because the bare minimum of things to give up are not on the table for you to give up. And, you know, whether it's simple things like, you know, how many times I've in an all white room and there's so many cultural references that I just have no clue about? None. And you figure out whether you're like, is this a moment where I play along? And like, sometimes it's that moment. Is it the moment where I admit in that moment and it's comical for everyone that I'm like, I have no idea who the Eagles are. I'm sorry, I didn't grow up with that. (laughs) For instance, still don't. Couldn't name the Eagles song if I tried. So specific, Kamala. (laughs) For all my white friends, no, I'm not working on that gap. But I will fully admit it. Because I know that there are things that I just don't know. And I think that as a Black person, at a certain point, you do gain a confidence of being like, you know what? Our culture matters too. 
And it's okay if I don't know every white reference. That shouldn't be a prerequisite. But I think on the other side, when white people are inserted into situations where all of a sudden, all of their cultural references don't matter because they're not the cultural references of the people in the room. Then that's when you get, my God, you don't know about X, Y, and Z. And most of the time I'm like, but that thing is really white. So why should I know it? If I asked you some deep black culture cut, like you wouldn't know it either. And we can decide that that's the grounds on which we're not going to be friends, or we can decide that maybe we're going to learn things together and that's going to be interesting too. So I want to sort of move away from just individual friendships and think a little bit more globally around community building. So I think it's really important to be in community with whatever marginalized groups you're seeking to be an advocate for, whether that's as a straight person trying to be an ally to LGBTQIA people, as an able-bodied person trying to be a better ally and advocate to people with disabilities, whatever that is. So in Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, he calls it getting proximate. And he said, we can't create justice without getting close to the places where injustices prevail. We have to get proximate. So this is where just sending donations to some organization far away is going to fall short. Your aim should be building community. And this means being in and creating spaces where people of color in particular, and maybe Black people specifically for this conversation can actually thrive and would want to be in. And so I think when you find yourself in a group that has no Black people in it, you want to start asking yourself, have you set a table that I should want to come to? If it's a book club, what are you reading? What are you talking about? If it's a professional organization, where are you finding your members and what are the causes you guys are donating to? If it's a team at work, how do you recruit and where? So Monica, I'd love to bring you in just to talk about what does it mean to intentionally cultivate a space, whether it's in life or in work, where people that are different from you would actually want to be? And how have you done that in your own life? That's a hard question. So One reason why I'm a good person to answer this question is because I've lived so very many places. And in all of the very many places that I've lived, I've cultivated happy, loving, beautiful communities with people whom I love very much. So what did I do? I mean, I think not very different from what I was talking about at the beginning, right? I feel like I am drawn to people who are deeply committed to asking questions and being really mindful and intentional about their lives in general. That's who I like. That's who I get down with. And building community with those people in some ways is sort of easeful, right? Because you're aligned in what it is that you believe is the reason for being a person in the world. And so you cultivate your relationships with a kind of intentionality and commitment and care that in general echoes those greater aims of an individual. So in my classrooms, Part of what is really important to me is making sure that students know that the space that we are cultivating together is one about asking questions, is one about taking risks, is one where people are first and foremost respected in whatever way that matters to them to feel respected. At the beginning of class, I do a lot of managing expectations of what our classroom is going to feel like and what our classroom is going to be like. And the students have very much equal share as me in dictating what that is. And so it changes shape a little bit from semester to semester, just depending on who is in the room. Some of that norming is around language, right? I teach 19th and 20th century and 21st century American literature and culture. So we encounter texts that have racial epithets. We encounter texts that feel harmful for students sometimes, that can be triggering for students. We read texts about abuse sometimes or sexual violence or 
racial violence. We might watch a movie that has scenes. So we have to talk about how it is that as a classroom, we want to maintain the priority of the people in the room and the well-being of the people in the room, even as we talk about things that are really challenging and difficult. And so part of what that means is talking about what it is that we want to do as a classroom when there are racial epithets in an excerpt that we might be reading out loud. And I give them choices. So it becomes, I think in classrooms, it's more obvious that there's a way to have a conversation about setting norms because we're in a classroom. And so there's a a context for talking about the language that it is that you're going to use. It's a little more amorphous when you're thinking about creating communities of folks who are coming together because they like each other or they might want to sing a song together or something like have food. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what folks do with their folks. I only know what I do with my folks. We sing, we have food, and we talk. (laughs) Anyway, so being intentional about making sure that the very specific people who are in the room are feeling respected and seen. I think it gets a little tricky. You know, some campuses, right, they think that if they're going to make their campus comfortable for folks that have historically been excluded from the spaces, they add some Black art or <laughs> they add some art from different spaces. And I think that that is an important step on campuses. I'm happy that that is happening. But it also doesn't then necessarily translate into how it is that the people are engaging with one another. So in communities, especially in small communities or in more intimate settings of a group of folks, I think it really matters to be so hyper attentive to the individual who is there. So I don't know that there's like a, and this is the same that happens in my classrooms, right? Like when I give them options for how to deal with a racial epithet in a text, I really truly give them options and every class decides something different about what we're gonna do. Sometimes we don't say it. Sometimes we say the first letter. Sometimes we skip it entirely. Sometimes they ask me to choose another excerpt and I respect that because they are the people who are in the room. So for me, the valuable thing about being in community in general, but also being part of collectivities that are more specific than just community in general, is the attention that you can have to the individual because there's a group of people who are maintaining the community itself. Totally agree. I think that there's no blanket way, to your point, that is going to create comfort for every single person in the room. But there is an approach. And what I'm hearing in your approach is being intentional about creating the type of environment and co-creating it, maybe more importantly. It's not a table that is just set by the white person who is like trying to engage and endeavor to have like more diverse friends. It's like, how are you going to co-create that space? So just before we wrap up, I'd love, Jess, if you can talk a little bit about how you as a people leader have tried to do that on your teams and how you invite a level of intimacy around having conversations about race in spaces where they might not normally exist. Sure. Yeah, I think that the way I approach team building is actually still very similar to how I approach community building in my personal life and my whole life. Because again, to Mon's point, more interested in being authentic in all situations versus, well, this is the setting, therefore this is how we work here or something. I mean, I think what you're saying about community, whether it's in the workplace or personally, is really important. And I totally agree with its importance because I think I am an optimist, maybe a cautious optimist, but I am an optimist. And I believe that the more you can connect people through community, the more these things will change. And like I said, I think that no book or no offense, but podcast has the power that human interaction does. So you can read the new Jim Crow, but getting to know someone who is or has been incarcerated is always going to be more powerful, I think, in terms of 
your thoughts and experiences around incarceration. And I think that's just true. You know, you can read how to be anti-racist, but it's never going to be as powerful as being on a Zoom with seven friends who are Black and, and hearing their experience. So community is so important for that. And it's been interesting to talk about comfort because I actually, even hearing you both talk about it now, it's really making me rethink the fact that I actually think in an ideal world, everybody could be comfortable. And the reason that we can't prioritize comfort right now is because everyone can't be. But like, I'd love to be in community with both of you or with people who report to me where they get to be comfortable. And what I'm giving up is a level of comfort. And so I'd love to say, oh, I just try to approach team building or community building, try to make it a safe space where everybody feels heard and seen and like they can say whatever they want. But part of my learning curve has been that as a white person involved in this community, that's not enough. So I think it's a balance of uh, if you report to me or your friend, you hang out with me. Yes, it's I want to make sure you feel that you can speak 1 million percent as yourself and know you will be believed and listened to and empathized with. But I think that what I've learned is I actually then need to take a next step of taking some of that burden off of other people wherever I can so that they can get closer to a place of comfort and relaxation because what they're expressing to me doesn't only then get told. And it's like, oh man, I I hear you. That's great. Good luck fighting that battle. So for me, something I've, as I've gotten older, brought to my leadership, but also my personal communities is how can I take the things I'm hearing and learning and that are being expressed to me and then say, great, now you go watch a movie, like have a good day and let me work on this thing. Let me raise this concern. Let me yell about this thing. Let me try to change the structure because as a friend or as your boss or whatever, I want to take some of that off of you since I can, because I'm living with all of this white privilege. I want to live in the community that Monica is talking about, but I think my job in that community is probably more active. And to the point of this whole funnel, like more anti-racist, if that's truly going to be a community where people want me to be in, it can't just be about safety and comfort and listening from a white perspective. It has to be about what are you doing with the things that you're hearing and learning? And are you making people in your community feel like you've got their back, you are fighting for them, you're advocating for them, you're somehow in the tiniest way making their life a little bit easier. That's something I've learned is important to bring to diverse communities as a white person. I also will just say something I heard that I think about a lot is a comparison of diversity and inclusion and belonging is diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance and the belonging is the party being built for you to have fun there. So the music at the party, the food at the party, the decor at the party, the time of the party, like, are you building the party? to allow people to come and have a really great time versus just inviting them to a party that was not built for them to have a good time. And so I think about that a lot with how I build my teams or even in friendships, like constantly questioning the structure of what we're being asked to do, how we're being asked to interact, how performance is being judged, how success is being measured, constantly poking holes at that because otherwise you're just trying to create a nice community in a larger space that was not built for the people who are essentially still feeling like a guest in that community. So just being willing to like question and push and change structures as you invite more and more people into that community and not being stuck with like, but this is the thing we built four years ago. Why aren't people fitting into this community better? Why are they saying they're not comfortable? Why are they choosing to leave and go to other communities? But just being willing to remake the community forever and ever and ever, like just be constantly remaking it until 
you die, basically. Totally. The last thing that I'll say is that I think part of what both of you are hinting towards is that I think the real power and promise and potential of building these types of relationships is putting yourself in situations where accountability can be a part of your practice, where feedback can be given, where perspectives can be shared without it actually eroding the space, but actually creating a dynamic where that type of accountability makes the space stronger. So I'll just leave people with, if you haven't read anything from Dr. Barbara Love and her liberatory consciousness framework, she talks about a framework for social justice that goes awareness to analysis, to action, and then accountability. And I think that accountability can get a really bad rap. And to some people, it just feels like you just want me to be called out. It sounds scary, but it's really a part of growth. And you're not going to automatically be labeled a bad guy forever if someone has to give you feedback on a race-related blind spot that you have. But I think that you're probably never going to get that feedback if you don't insert yourself in circles where there are perspectives that are different enough from yours that you recognize that, oh, that thing that I just thought was like whatever is actually something that reflects a structure that was built to not include my Black friend. And if you don't have the Black friend to point those spaces out to you and say, hey, why do you think that X, Y, and Z is okay? Then there won't be any growth. So I know we could talk about this forever, and I'm sure that we will continue to in our own time. But before we go, I just want to thank Jessica and Monica so much for joining us in this space today. And can you just tell everyone how they can follow you or your work? Sure. <laughs> I had to prepare for that. You can follow our organizing stories at organizingstories.com. My books are on my website, which is monicahuertaphd.com. Jess, how can people follow you and your work? You can find me on Instagram at Jess underscore Massa. Some of my work ends up there. And I would say in general, check out BuzzFeed's work. In particular, look up Cocoa Butter, look up Goodful, as is just some really great brands who are making a lot of really important headway in terms of representation and diverse and inclusive content and also just making really great, fun, fantastic internet content. All right. Well, we're in the home stretch now. We talked about relationships and building community, and it really does matter. And if this episode triggered you, my nudge to you would be to go deeper and think about why. Now, in our next episode, we're going to be jumping into reflection, and I think this is the perfect springboard for that, and really digging into why you really, really, really need to think before you endeavor to act when it comes to allyship and anti-racism. So till next time, I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and this has been From Woke to Work. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at TheRealKS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts, and don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila-Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at StudioPod. Edits were made by Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time.